Once again, I'd like to turn, have you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. As we see another revelation very similar to the one we read about in Revelation 1. In Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth. Nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uthaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like a flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem. Understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I have been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to you to give an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with a human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous, 
Now, as he soon, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, may my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, the challenge with so much of prophecy is to interpret it rightly. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding this afternoon. Help me to rightly explain it. And Lord, guard my lips from any error. And that only what is true and helpful would be recalled. Lord, I also pray that you would give us understanding, for that's why you've given this text. And so we look forward to your encouragement through your word this day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In their well-known Christian hit, uh, Mercy Me song, I Can Only Imagine, they ponder what their experience will be like when they see God face to face. The lyrics, of course, you might know, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes would see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance before you, Jesus, or will in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? To my my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. Now in the passage before us, we're not left to our imaginations to know at least what Daniel's experience would be as he sees the Lord face to face. Because we're told in great detail. Now the text does not explicitly state that the one whom Daniel meets here is... Uh, the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. But I do think that's the best way to interpret it. Uh, Scholars do debate the identity of this angel. Uh, The angel is unnamed, so we can't know with absolute certainty who it is. But again, I do think the evidence strongly suggests that this is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, One reason is because of the parallels with Revelation 1, which we already read, almost exact parallels with the description of the risen Christ. Uh, There's also remarkable parallels with Paul's theophany, that he has an axe when he is saved and sees the risen Lord. Also with 2 Corinthians 12, as we'll see. Also, you might note in verses 16 and 18, 18, the angel specifically said to have a human appearance. Angels can sometimes have other appearances, and, but like in Genesis uh, 18 and 19, the angels have, uh, that, that come to Jesus and then go to Sodom and Gomorrah, they had a human appearance. Gabriel has a human appearance. But I think this is v- very similar to uh, what, what stems from the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 2. The emphasis being this is the true man, the real man, the, really the real Israel, in contrast to the beast's that rule the earth before him. This one is like 
the way man was supposed to be. He has the appearance of what man is supposed to be like, unlike these beasts. But the main argument against this being the pre-incarnate Christ really is the fact that he's hindered by the prince of Persia, which is also seen to be a demon, uh, for 21 days. How is it that anybody could withstand the second person of the Trinity? And I think that's a, a, a fair question. But I, frankly, I think the language there is more symbolic than literal, uh, especially because of who he wrestles with. First, he's wrestling with the prince of Persia. Um, and then he goes off, he will wrestle with the prince of Greece, which is, of course, the outline that has been given according to God's sovereign plan and design. So nobody's really withstanding God's purposes here, except what God demonstrates. But also, it, interestingly, it said um, that, well, where did I read this? Um, this stood out to me. He, I, he identifies with the people of Israel in particular. This stood out to me even as I was reading the text just a few minutes ago. That he was left in Persia alone. Well, who else is left in Persia alone? Well, Israel. This angel is identifying with the people of Israel himself, much like the Lord himself does, as the great suffering servant on their behalf. But also, I think even if the Lord does not need help, which he certainly does not, often even Jesus himself sought help. Think of when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked his disciples to pray with him, to pray for him. Now, he doesn't need their help in prayer. He was sovereign. But the Lord himself also seeks to use means. He uses the church to bring about his purposes of spreading the gospel to the nations. He commissions people to help him in his work. And so he uses angels as well as humans to accomplish that. Not because he needs them, but because that's his design. So I think all this is really reflecting is everything that's going on here is according to design. But note also one other thing. He's wrestling in Persia with this demon or the prince of Persia for three weeks. The exact amount of time that Daniel is mourning. I don't think that's a coincidence. And in fact, I think that's trying to emphasize something. Precisely that Daniel's mourning corresponds with the purposes of God in wrestling against the, the forces of this world. And I think it's really there to suggest that Daniel actually in his mourning, in his praying, is bringing about the purposes of God. See, Daniel's mourning because he doesn't know what's going on. He's confused. He's reading the Word of God and trying to make sense of it. And as he sees what's happened to Israel, despite all these promises that have been given uh, to the patriarchs, despite all the promises in the Word of God, Daniel's like, what gives? Because it looks like, the God, you've forsaken us. How do I make sense of this? And he's grieving. But what this reveals is, Daniel doesn't know what's going on in the spiritual realm. But Daniel's mourning actually corresponds with God bringing about his purposes in the spiritual realm. And that's the point. I think this is the point of actually the passage. Is that even though we don't know what God is up to in the spiritual places, how God is actually bringing about his purposes on this earth. In fact, it may look like God has abandoned us at times. But that doesn't mean he has. 
And so what do we do when we don't understand the purposes of God? We do what Daniel does. We seek understanding and we mourn and we humble ourselves, pray, fear God, seek to be strengthened by God. And we will also be treasured by God. So I think in summary, this gives us a picture of how a godly man or woman should respond during confusion and during dangerous times of conflict, which will be what characterizes the reign of ungodly rulers on the earth. That is that is what happened from the exile until Christ's return. It will be a rule of ungodly leaders. And so how should Christians, how should believers respond? This is a picture of how we should respond in light of not really understanding all of what God is up to. And the chapter teaches us that the man of God should be characterized by seven things. And they're there for you in the outline. So I've entitled the message, The Man of God Before God. Or it could be entitled, Daniel Coram Deo. That's the Latin phrase meaning, to live before God. Verse 1 tells us that his vision occurred in the third year of Cyrus, 536 B.C. So this is three years after the previous vision that he had in Daniel chapter 9. And this is actually, this vision is going to carry through the rest of the book. So his vision actually takes place over three chapters. He has the vision of, um, in chapter uh, 10, and then it's explained in uh, detail in chapter 11. And then chapter 12 is kind of a summary to bring it to a close. And so this could be taken all in one sermon, but I had mercy on you um, and thought I'd divide it up. And I think chapter 10 is enough really for today. But it is really one unit. So this is three years after his vision from the previous chapter and in uh, 536 B.C. So Daniel would have been 84 at this time. Um, We don't know how much longer he lived. The text doesn't tell us. But he would have been in exile nearly 70 years. I think that's helpful to keep in mind. And this was not 70 years of vacation. We already read what happened in Daniel 1 through 6, a time of great struggle. Now, not every day was necessarily hanging out with lions, but it was hard. Certainly, he had people who surrounded him who didn't like him and wanted him dead. And he was away from uh, regular worship. He, He had been separated from his family permanently. And so this was a hard life. And you could see why all the more he'd be mourning as he doesn't understand, God, what are you up to? And but God wants to help him. In fact, that's one of the main emphases in this passage is to give understanding. The angel comes to Daniel to give clarity so that Daniel would have peace in understanding that all of this is according to his design. And he wants Daniel to understand that. To provide understanding regarding the future conflicts of Israel. This word understanding is emphasized again and again. Verse 14. The angel explains it's to give understanding. And that's because in verse 12, Daniel set his heart to understand. And so we too should understand what God is up to. In verse 2, we're introduced really to the first characteristic of godliness which is that Daniel mourns. Notice in verse 2 it says, 
In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the three weeks were completed. Uh, It's important to point out that it literally says three weeks of days. And you're thinking, well, what other kind of weeks would there be? Days are a week of seven days, right? That's what a week is. Well, again, that word for week is the same word that was used earlier that corresponded to weeks of years. And so it's actually to contrast. I'm not Daniel is speaking of literally 21 days, whereas before the prophecy was speaking of sets of seven years, which, again, I think gives legitimacy to interpreting it as sets of seven years. So this is 21 days that Daniel was fasting. And it wasn't necessarily fasting entirely from food, but he didn't have any tasty food or meat or use ointment. And the, the point of this is he's in mourning. He's grieved. He doesn't, he doesn't want delicacies. And if, you, if you've ever been in a, in a period of mourning or significant loss, one of the first things to go is your appetite. And, and especially good food, because it just, it, it just doesn't correspond to your heart. You're grieving. And he's grieving the situation of Israel. And the whole reason Daniel receives this vision is because of his mourning. God comes to him and finds pleasure in him precisely because Daniel is grieved over what he sees, which is also what God is grieved over. This whole situation where Israel has to be sent into exile was grievous to God. He didn't want it to happen. That's why he sent his prophets and he pleaded with his people, trust me, believe, repent from your sins. But they were so stiff-necked they wouldn't listen. And so he did so for their good. But it grieved God. And so God finds pleasure in Daniel precisely because Daniel too is grieved. He is a man after God's own heart like David. But I imagine if you were to ask a, a person, how, what do you think should, would characterize, if you were to give me ten characteristics of a godly man, mourning would probably not be at the top of the list. It may not even be on the list. But it's remarkable, as you look at Scripture, how much mourning it does characterize godly saints in Scripture. Jesus himself wept over the tomb of Lazarus. And he also wept over Jerusalem for her apostasy. Uh, In Isaiah 53, he's described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The whole point is is his life was one of mourning and grieving. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Uh, Records of David's frequent mourning is seen in the Psalms of Lament. In fact, You might not know this, but the Psalms of Lament characterize more of the Psalms than any other kind of Psalms. It's the largest category of Psalms. 41% of 150 Psalms, to be more specific, 62 of 150 of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. Just think about that. Especially as we look at the Psalms often as an expression of worship. You know, lament, though, in evangelical Christianity often just is not seen as something as normal. But if you look at Scripture, it is. And I think that's something we need to take into consideration. 
after hearing of the state of Jerusalem, Nehemiah wept and mourned. Verse 4, Nehemiah 1.4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Ezra, who led Israel in a massive um, uh, period of uh, confession, it's, it talks about uh, also mourned in, in 10.1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. I mean, you have this picture of just massive mourning. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, a good expression of worship. Because if God has said, this is the way things are supposed to be, and they're not that way, somebody who really believes that and who really loves God would not think of it lightly, that we, we should be grieved. It's godly to mourn. And this needs to be emphasized again because the evangelical, I think, often believe that there's something wrong with a person if they mourn too much. That, 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 that they don't have enough faith if, if they're grieving. Now, I don't think we should be self-pitiful. These people weren't self-pitiful. But they were grieved over the sin and folly of God's people and its consequences. And so like Jesus, Jeremiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah, Daniel too is grieved as he looks at the situation of Israel. And he grieves for 21 days. And he's grieved over the physical state of Jerusalem. And he wonders, God, are you going to rest- when are you going to restore your people? When are you going to fulfill your promises? And to that end, he seeks understanding. He wants to understand what God is up to. And he's commended for that. Notice in verse 12, Daniel's commended for setting his heart to understand. It's to give understanding for why he has this vision. It's why the Lord comes to him. And so wanting to understand how God's word corresponds to what God is up to in history and in contemporary society is a commendable thing. The Lord wants us to understand what he's up to. It's, it's okay to want to know God, when might you come back and to, and to pray and seek the Lord and His return? God wants His people to understand, and that's why He's given us His Word. He wants us to understand His purposes, and He wants us to know Him. John seventeen three. This is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Interestingly, it also says of Ezra in chapter 7, For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. Why? Notice this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. The good hand of God was on Ezra. Why? Because he had set his heart to understand God's word. God was with them because Ezra sought to understand, just like Daniel. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates, right, day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. In all that he does, he prospers. The whole point, really, of of the past three chapters of Daniel is to give understanding. God wants you to understand. Again, that's why he's given you his word. And so he wants us to study and meditate on his word so that so that we would not be frightened by any fear. The more, if you wrestle with how do I prepare myself and my family for persecution? The answer is not go purchase a bunch of M16s. It's not go get as much, you know, imperishable food as possible. The the answer to prepare your family for the difficulties and persecution that may come is understand God's word. Become mighty in the scriptures. That's what characterized Daniel, who suffered greatly under persecution. It's what characterized um, Ezra. It's what characterized Nehemiah. It's what characterized Christ. God gives us words that we would remain steadfast and confident that we would be like well-watered oaks that stand firm in the storms of life and that in season, in time, we then bear fruit and prosper. So if you're wondering where you should commit your time regarding the future, whether you should take up a new hobby, coach a little league team, volunteer at a hospital, Join a gym. Those aren't bad decisions. But I would say, if you take God seriously, and you really realize the state of this world, you'd want to deepen your understanding and grasp of the Word of God as much as possible. Take every opportunity to deepen your understanding of God's Word. And this is why Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Paul goes on to say and explain how that godliness comes about. And he tells Timothy it comes about through the teaching and preaching of God's word. Understanding God's word. That's why he says, preach the word, Timothy. If you want to prepare your congregation, don't just sing songs together. Teach them. Help them understand God's word. Don't just pray together. Teach. Preach. Give explanation to God's word. Because that's what is going to give us strength and understanding in tumultuous times. We should sing. We should pray. But it's the word that gives understanding. As Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the man of God or the woman of God must devote themselves to understanding God's word as well as mourn when they see that God's purposes are in conflict with what's going on in the world. Thirdly, the man of God humbles himself. This is seen throughout the chapter, but especially in Daniel's mourning and his fasting. But notice in verse 12, it's specifically commended. 
For the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God. See, Daniel neglected the dainties of the king's table because he cared more about God's interests than, than uh, fulfilling his fleshly desires. He, humbling oneself is prioritizing another person above you. Namely God, first and foremost, but also in prioritizing one another's needs before our own. And Daniel in his uh, fasting demonstrates he cares more about God's interests than his own. So to humble oneself is not to be self-deprecating. It's to ignore our own interests. It's to be selfless. And again, when Daniel was mourning and fasting, he wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. He wasn't trying to be pious, prove that he's more godly than the others like the Pharisees did. It was genuine. It was from his heart. He was seeking God. And so when God shows up before Daniel, Daniel responds the same way his heart was. He falls face first on the ground because he was humbled. Notice he doesn't say when he meets the angel, Hey, God, Yahweh, how you doing? I've, I've been waiting all my life to see you. Nor does he say, hey, I've been praying for 21 days. It's about time you showed up. Totally opposite. He wasn't thinking about him face first on the ground. To humble oneself is to say, God, your glory means far more than my comfort. I mean, think about that, the implications of that on your life. Opportunities to share your testimony. Sharing Christ with an unbeliever, a coworker. Uh, confronting erroneous beliefs while you're having a discussion as a family. Those are uncomfortable things to do. But Christians, we, we need to care more about God's glory than what's comfortable for us. There are some ministries that might be uncomfortable for you to serve in. But if their needs, needs that if they are met will bring more glory to God, we should be eager to meet those needs. Because God's glory means more to us than our comfort and honor. But the most easiest and obvious way of humbling ourselves is to pray. And that's what Daniel does. Fourth thing, he prays. The emphasis on prayer throughout the Daniel, the book of Daniel, is no accident. Remember, when death was imminent, all the wise men were going to be slaughtered because of the of the dream, the vision that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had. Well, how does Daniel respond? He gathers his three friends together and they pray. When the edict is given that no man can pray to any other god, but the king of Persia, how does Daniel respond? He prays three times a day. We see a great example of prayer, of confession in Daniel 9, the previous chapter. Throughout the book of Daniel, and this is no accident, prayer is emphasized. Just like the, a, a proper understanding of the Word of God is emphasized. So, by the way, I don't come up with the emphasis of 
needing the word and praying and fellowshipping because it's just a, a, a cute little philosophy of ministry. It's because the Bible again and again, and it emphasizes if you want to grow, you must hold fast to these things. And prayer is central. The point is, prayer is critical for spiritual survival during the reign of ungodly rulers on the earth. Again, this is a picture of how do believers thrive when they don't understand what's going on, when there's persecution, when there's suffering, when it seems that God has abandoned his people. Well, one of the things that Christians must do is pray. That's why Paul urges the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And why Jesus in Luke 18 told a a parable specifically so that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That we would always pray and not lose heart. Fifthly, the thing that a man of God does is he fears God. Notice again how Daniel responds to the vision. Five times in verses 7 through 12, that some description of fear is emphasized. Again, no accident. One of the best ways to see what a text emphasizes is how many times something comes up. Well, five times in the many verses shows that that's a major aspect. This vision is not one to be taken lightly. It's terrifying. Why is it terrifying? Because God is because Daniel is seeing God face to face. Obviously, Daniel was afraid primarily because of this. The men who were with Daniel were also terrified. But recognize also that John had the same response in Revelation. When he saw Jesus, the one who he had laid on his breast during the Last Supper, the beloved disciple fell flat on his face when he saw the risen Christ. Also, Joshua, the warrior, when he came face to face with the angel of the Lord, did the same thing. He, lay, he went face down and worshipped him. And he said, tell, tell your servant what you want him to do. So the beloved John, the wise Daniel, courageous Joshua, all responded to God in the very same way when they met him face to face. That is not a coincidence. They fell on their face. A.W. Tozer rightly said that what comes to a person's mind when they think about God is the most important thing about them. And I think he's right. And I think in evangelicalism in the 21st century, we have a far too domesticated view of God. We have created God in our image versus recognizing we're made in his image. The author of Ecclesiastes offers these sobering words for our benefit. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they're doing. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Imagine if those verses 
were to characterize more of evangelical worship services. Sixthly, he's strengthened by God. He fears God. He's also strengthened by God. The text emphasizes that when Daniel has this vision of Christ, he retained no strength. Notice that again. Seven times the word strength is used in this chapter. In fact, it says he's unable to speak. He, he, he's not only flat down on the ground, he, he can barely breathe. Like the wind has been knocked out of him. And it's not until his lips are touched by the Lord that he's even able to talk. Verse 16, And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such as a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. So Jesus' touch restores his words. But notice that Daniel's strength is still not fully restored until he's touched again. So the touch restores his ability to speak, but he still doesn't regain his strength until he's touched again. Three times he must be revived. Verse 19. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength. May my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Right? So he needs to be strengthened in verse 16, in verse 18, and finally in verse 19. Three times. So the the need for Daniel to be strengthened is being emphasized here. The point is Daniel cannot handle the presence of God. Or the revelation that he's about to receive in chapter 11. He needs strength. And as humble and as godly and as wise as Daniel is, he can't even handle the presence of God. He needs to be strengthened by God. His human strength is insufficient. And notice that God strengthens him through his word. Verse 19, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, may my Lord speak for you have have strengthened me through speaking. Can you think of any other times a person has had a vision of God, prayed and needed strength in their weakness? So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See how Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 12 lines up with with, uh, the book of Daniel. As Paul is saying, I can be content in hardships, persecutions, calamities, when all around me seems to be giving way. I can be content in my weakness. Why? 
because he knows what Daniel was learning from uh, the second person of the Trinity back in Daniel chapter 10. You need my strength. Brothers and sisters, we don't have it in ourselves, in our human ability to be able to withstand the suffering that will happen, whether on account of persecution, whether on account of the loss uh, of loved ones or loss of um, health. You will not be able to stand on your own. You will not be able to spiritually thrive unless you seek strength in Christ. And being a strong man does not you assert yourself and your own will on everybody else around you. You prove yourself. You pump iron. You take leadership courses. No, it means you humble yourself and you seek strength from God. You trust him. It's not about strengthening yourself. It's letting him work in your weakness. So if you're, you're wondering, how do I prepare myself for suffering? Admit you're weak. Admit you're weak. It's not, it's not going and taking a taekwondo class. It's looking to Christ. Help me, Lord. Daniel, in his humanity, needs to be strengthened by the Son of Man in order to stand in His presence. Seventh, the man and woman of God is treasured by God. Notice that twice in this passage, Daniel is told that he's a man of high esteem. And I think that's in contrast to the kings that are described in Daniel 8 and 9, who seek to magnify them. The point is here, it's those who are humble who will be magnified. Right? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's why God calls him a man of high esteem. That word high esteem means to be a treasured person, uh, or the King James says, a man greatly beloved. The word is used to describe something that is valuable or precious. So it's, it's the, that which is valuable or precious, it's the, it's the thing that you grab when your house is burning down. The things that are most important to you, that are most precious, could be your kids, could be your car, your dog. Um, what is tr- what is what is your treasure? Well, do you know want to know what God treasures? Men and women who are like Daniel, who mourn over what he mourns, who seek understanding who humble themselves, who pray, who fear Him, and who find their strength in Him. Heavenly Father, we want to be such people. Lord, we know that not everybody who comes to stand before You in the last day will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because so few are faithful. But Lord, we want to be in that number who are faithful and and also treasured by You. Lord, we know that we are secure and we're safe on account of the cross that we will not lose our salvation because it has been purchased
by Christ and that none can separate us from the Father's hand. And yet, we also are not merely content to be saved. We want to be useful to You. And Lord, we want to thrive in the midst of difficulty. Lord, we want to be exemplary to others who are hurting. We want to actually help one another and not just be a burden to one another. So Father, help us to be like Daniel, but even more so, help us to be like Your Son. Give us grace towards that end. We ask this in Christ's name.